Good morning. Happy Easter. You know, about 15, 16 hours ago, millions of believers started worshiping on this Easter morning on the other side of the world. And it will go on today. And uh, there's no celebration like it. There's nothing that unites the hearts of people worldwide like the resurrection of Jesus. And um, they're saying things like, in India, Jay Masiki, in Ethiopia, Xavier Yameskin, and I won't attempt any more. <laughs> but uh, the greatest story ever lived was lived by Jesus Christ. And that's what we celebrate today. And when you think about it, um, we were watching uh, by accident last night, a serendipity, we turned on the uh, Passion of the Christ as we, it, it was on when Jesus was arrested and we watched it from then on. And yes, it's brutal, but it was an accurate portrayal of the sufferings of Christ. And when you think about it, Easter is God's story because we wouldn't have done it that way. We would not have let ourselves be subjected to that much humiliation, pain, torture, rejection by the very people we came to rescue and save. But that's what makes Easter what it is. And uh, the other part of it is that when Jesus is on that cross and uh, he is brutalized and bloodied, within 48 hours, the world's gonna be changed because he has overcome all of our greatest challenges and fears and uh, so that we have today. And Easter brings joy. When you think about this, if, if as of no other celebration. And uh, if, if we can't enter joy on Easter, I don't know when we can. So we're going to ask some questions this morning. And um, one of them is this, what is joy? What would you say? One of them is uh, uh, probably uh, making sure the air conditioner in here works. Uh, can we uh, check on that stand to see? Uh, I'm a little warm up here, and I just came in from the outside. So, But uh, what is joy besides playing with grandkids? Um, th that'll start. You know, I was thinking about it, and so I, I read the dictionary just this week to, to see what they said about joy. And it says uh, joy is to rejoice. Well, I, I agree. I mean... That's what it is, uh, to rejoice. But that's sort of a circular argument. So I was thinking about it. You know what I believe joy is? Joy is the result of doing the right thing. That is, of trusting the right person. Of giving yourself for the right cause with the right motives. And it's also at the heart of yielding to a greater plan than our own. I don't believe you can have joy without that. It's making sure God is our ultimate treasure because that's the one treasure we can never lose. We can lose all everything else. And then also I think it was joy for me is understanding letting God determine the outcome. Knowing that he always wins in the end. Even if we're behind with two outs in the bottom of the ninth and we're behind by nine runs, he's going to win. Knowing that God wins against the, even when the odds are stacked against us. And I believe this 
that assurance is knowing that God's in control, regardless of what happening, is what's happening all around us. You know, happiness is based on circumstances. You know, as long as things are going well, I can be happy. But as soon as they head south, happiness goes. You know, it's as fleeting as the emotions of a junior high dance. But Easter is the guarantee of lasting joy rising. How can I say joy rising? Because Jesus rose from the dead and uh, he is continually overcoming those things that we face. Anybody here use a little more joy on Easter morning? Okay, uh, nobody in the second service. It was unanimous in the first. Yeah. That's why they came early. They needed more than you do. Um, in a world where it's hard to find any good news, have you read a news release uh, or looked at one on, you know, this, this morning on your phone? And here, is there any good news out there? We look hard for it. We were in uh, Malawi uh, two weeks ago. We got back Tuesday from Africa. And uh, when we were there after our second day of training, we were coming back uh, and we noticed there's kind of a long line of people on the, in Malawi, the, the interstate highway is two lanes, one going this way and that's it. And there was a mob of people and we noticed them running out in front of the trucks in front of us and begin throwing rocks and picking up boulders. There were boulders all over. And we, we didn't know what it was, but we were the third car in line. And uh, so after they were bombing, or I say stoning, uh, the, the car two ahead of us, uh, we went and we thought we were gonna get through and all of a sudden this huge thud. And it was a boulder hit us. I was waiting for glass to shatter. A car was filled with, uh, with people. And um, um, Louise was driving and she stopped. She said, Louise, gun it, you know? And uh, we got through. We discovered the next day what had happened was the opposition party leader had been in prison that day. And so these were protesters just throwing at anybody that happened to be coming by. We had to go back that way the next day and the next two days as well. Um, and then uh, some of you probably read uh, yesterday that uh, the president of Malawi died. Um, that has nothing to do with Easter, but it does have to do with the fact that everywhere we see and everywhere we go in the world, we see great instability. It's rising. And if there's one thing that's certain, it's uncertainty that's out there. And Easter comes to answer the questions that you and I have and answers the greatest questions. And one of the ones, we're gonna look at three of them today, this morning, is simply this one. Does God keep his promises in a world of broken promises, in a world of shattered dreams? Does God keep his promises? Is another way of saying that is, is Jesus really the promised one? Because he claimed to be, the scriptures indicate that. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 24, I'm going to read to you the first 11 verses. If there's, um, there's one there for you in, in the, uh, the back of your pocket, the, the seat pocket, you'll recognize this. But it says, But very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. That would be a wake-up call, wouldn't it, in the morning? The women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground. Then the men asked, Why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee. 
that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and that he would rise again on the third day. Jesus had told him that, not once, not twice, not three times, but over and over. Then they remembered that he had said this. So they rushed back from the tomb to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and several other women who told the apostles what happened, who started a great celebration and danced all night. It's not what it says. But the story sounded like nonsense to the men. Figures. So they didn't believe it. However, Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb to look. Stooping, he peered in and saw the empty linen wrappings. Then he went home again, wondering what had happened. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? About them. You see, all the evidence pointed to the fact that Jesus was not there. He was not in the tomb anymore. All the evidence indicated that something miraculous had happened. But the response of his own followers, of his own committed 12 minus 1, was a little less than enthusiastic. Now why? Well, number one, dead men don't rise. Have you seen any recently? Have you seen any dead men walking around? Neither had they. And on the other hand, Jesus had promised that he would rise. The scriptures predicted that hundreds of years before that the Messiah would be crucified, buried in the tomb of a rich man, and that he would, he would rise again. You know, uh, skeptics over the years have said the disciples were misguided. They were deluded. They believed a myth. You know, all the evidence says exactly the opposite. They didn't believe the evidence. When I was in college, uh, anybody here ever read the Passover plot? Okay, one other. Um, the Passover plot was written by a skeptic about the, the resurrection of Christ. When I was in college, uh, there was this thing, don't believe anything unless you can prove it. So I had great questions about Jesus and who is he, and I and, uh, read this book called The Passover Plot. And what it says is that the Passover, I mean, the, uh, it was a plot that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. That he had a hard day at the office, he passed out. His, his disciples thought he was dead, so they wrapped him and put him in a tomb and, and sealed it with a one-ton rock in front of it. The cool tomb revived Jesus, and realizing he was locked in, he hopped over in this cocoon that he was wrapped in. He pushed over the one-ton rock, rock uh, went out and undid the wrappings, rubbing himself against the tree, pre, uh, went out and preached that he was risen, and then died in oblivion. All the, all the denials of the resurrection take more faith to believe that than they do the evidence of what Jesus said. On the other hand, I do believe the disciples were misguided. And I believe that they believed a myth initially. You see, they were initially misguided because they believed their feelings and their experience and trusted their experience more than the evidence. You see, they were believing dead men don't rise, and nothing could interrupt that. They already had their mindset locked in. And all the evidence wasn't going to break through in that one. And the myth, uh, there's two meanings to myth, but the one we're talking about today is the idea of there's not evidence supported. And the myth they believed was this, that God is not strong enough to do the very miracles that he predicted, 
And that though Jesus was a miracle worker and they had seen him do dozens and dozens of miracles, that this one, the greatest one, that his father raised him from the dead could not be possible. So they were misguided, believing a myth. And yet all the evidence puts Jesus above every other leader who ever lived. And every life. You see, Jesus went on before he died. He made some claims that were pretty outstanding. He said, I'm God. I forgive sins. He performed miracles that no other person ever has. And he made predictions. One of them was not only I'll rise again, but I'm coming back. And when he comes back, it won't be to say hello. But it'll bring justice finally to this world that needs it so desperately. And this also then takes Jesus out of the realm of good teacher, you know, prophet type guy. And it puts, makes us stare the face to the reality that if the resurrection is true, God came and he lived among us. And what he said and all the other prophecies about him yet to come are going to come true. You see, God is not only the promise maker, he's a promise keeper. Nobody has, else has the track record that you and I could risk our whole life and eternity on. And folks, I don't know about you, but I am. I'm risking my entire future on the fact that Jesus Christ is alive, that everything he said is true, because never once has what he promised failed. And it's not going to start with you and me. Second question, does God overcome our greatest challenges? That is another way of saying it. Can he handle your problems and mine? Because the resurrection seems to indicate that he overcame the greatest hurdles we'll ever face. And everything underneath that, the Greek says, is a piece of cake. That was a joke. We were watching the Passion last night. And when they came to the scourgings of Christ that must have gone on for 10, 15, 20 minutes in the film. Most Westerns, by the way, it's not a Western film. It's not sugar-coated. The crucifixion was one of the cruelest forms of execution ever invented. And yet Jesus went there willingly and he gave up his life. The scriptures say the cross did not kill him. The Romans did not execute him. He said this, I lay down my life for my friends and I will take it up again. He told Pilate, he said, you have no power over me except which is given to you above. The scriptures tells us he could have called 10,000 angels and called the whole thing off at the drop of a hat. But he chose not to. He chose to go through torture. There's no other explanation for it. And he said, I will rise again. And Easter validated that. You know, folks, modern medicine has been able to extend our lives for a few years. But in the end, we all die. Question is, this morning, are you prepared to die? It's also been said, no one is really prepared to live until they can face their own death with the assurance that God gives. There was a little boy and there was a Memorial Day service. He was there with his parents and they were talking about servicemen and women who died in the wars and, and the little boy heard the phrase, they died in the service. He looked up to his mom. He said, Mommy, which one did they die in, 9 o'clock or the 1045? <laughs> Folks, if Jesus can handle death, 
then the rest of the life's problems are downhill and they grow smaller. Does God overcome our greatest? Notice the first one is death. He says, for sin is the sting that results in, the, in death. And the law gives sin its power. That means the law which demands performance. None of us could meet God's demands for performance. But thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you notice that sin and death kind of go together here? You can't separate the one. By the way, have you ever asked what percentage of our problems can be traced to sin? What do you think? Yep, pretty much all of them. I know I've caused 10%, I mean 90% of my own, and just leave a 10% clause for others have helped me. <laughs> but what is sin? You know, as we came back from Africa and my wife a few weeks before from India, and you ask what sin is, it's, you'll be, be amazed with what it is. I mean, they, they talk some real gory stuff, and they're involved in the spirit world, and there's witchcraft in Africa. And, and you know, to us, that's, you know, that's, that's kind of myth. But you know what they talk about? What they describe are sins. You know what sin is? Sin is simply going our own way and leaving God out. And that's what put Jesus on a cross, our ignoring him and ignoring what he did. It's an attitude of indifference to God. And wherever we leave God out of our lives, it will lead in time to pain, problems, it's a matter of time, and eventually death. So where are you leaving God out today? There will be trouble in those areas where we're ignoring Him eventually. But you see, God loves us too much to let us ignore Him without consequences because we are here not for us, we're here for God. Did you know that? You're made for him and you're here for his purposes, not your long-range plans, not the company's long-range strategic plans. That's not why you're here. We are here for him. We may not realize that, but that's why he made us. And it's also why Jesus had to die on that cross on that Friday was to pay for our debts. And you know why? Because only forgiven people go to heaven. See, only those who admit they blew the blueprint only those who realize they came far short of what God wants and turned and reached out to Christ are going to end up there. Because others said, hey, I don't need you. I can handle it myself. And yet Jesus showed great mercy and grace to those who wanted it. Because they went to the source, the only source of forgiveness in this universe. There's no other religion. There's no other one who died for the sins of the world. You know, we were on the airplane uh, two trips ago for me. And uh, it was, I think it was coming back to the U.S. And, you know, when you come back, it, you, they take all your water that you just bought. You know? And um, so I, made a, I get in and put my bag in overhead and make a beeline right for the back. And I said, you know, I, I have some issues that I, I just need some water. And can I get a bottle? And she said, well, I'm sorry. She's going to give me a little cup. And I knew that wouldn't do. She says, we only have the big, big bottles. I said, that'll do, and I took the bottle. And I was a happy camper. But I see, I went to the source. It wasn't because I was so great, but she had it, and I willingly took it. This plane flight, we were uh, on a row, interestingly enough, behind three guys that looked a little bit like um, Hell's Angels. 
And uh, one of the guys had a, a marvelous collection of tattoos. I studied the whole left arm because he was sitting right in front of me. And hit him on the back of his neck. He had the two ear pierced things, you know, and in the, in the, in the earrings. And, and uh, I was studying him. And after, after about 30 minutes, I said, wait a minute. Those guys are not what they look like. There were three of them. The little guy who was kind of the, the, the jokester and the big guy, <laughs> he laughed. And the other guy was just listening in. And um, so I, I said, there's something about these guys. And after about two hours, they served us a meal. Uh, that's what they called it, uh, a meal. <clears throat> and uh, on Ethiopian Airlines, um, it was, um, yeah. So I, um, I, I watched. And the big guy with all the tattoos took off his hat. And then he reached his hand across the aisle, and he, he and the three guys held hands and prayed for dinner. I thought, man, that's cool. And I was going to ask him anyhow, but so we got into some great conversations. You know who they were? Has anybody here ever heard of the machine gun preacher? The guy who goes into Uganda and southern Sudan and parts of Ethiopia, up near the Somali border, and he rescues these kids who've been kidnapped by the LRA and forced to kill their parents and murder when they're eight, nine, 10 years old. And he says, you know what? We can turn that around. He says, I'm gonna go kidnap those kids back. And he goes in with machine guns, and he means business. These were his guys. <laughs> and uh, on the way back, they were in the front row, they were right in front of us again. And we, by this time, our team of 10, we all got involved with, with them talking about it. It was a great trip. They'd been involved in three orphanages, and it was just wonderful. But they told us about Sam, Pastor Sam, who is the machine gun preacher. And if you haven't seen the movie, go online, look it up, Machine Gun Preacher, and, and watch it. Now, the opening scenes will be a little racy but, and raw. But he was on the FBI's most wanted list. And he came to Jesus. And now he's rescuing kids. And he's, he's willing to sacrifice his life. He's got a church. He's got three of them, actually, in the Pennsylvania area. And what's this all about? What it's all about is Jesus restores. He's overcome our greatest enemies, death and sin. And he's offering himself. And for people who he restores, God gives them a new life. The third great enemy that Jesus defeated on that day was the enemy of our soul. Now, C.S. Lewis said, you know, when you come to talk about the devil, you have one or two extremes. Either there are those who deny he exists, oh, come on, there's maybe an idea, but this personal devil stuff and this boogeyman, is, that's nonsense. Or there's those who give too much credit. You know, that the, the, there's a demon under every rock. You know, there's a sneeze demon, the chewing gum demon, the TV demon, and, and all those kinds of things. And uh, so they overdo it. Some of you were raised in cultures like one of those. By the way, which one of those two would you say dominates the West? Yeah. And so we keep getting beat up by an enemy that we can't see. It's like saying germs don't exist because I can't see them and yet they can kill you. That's the world we live in in the West, denial. But you see around the world, the Bible tells us that we live in the spiritual world. We're fighting cosmic forces we cannot see. And if you don't think they're there, then they will take you out systematically. There's another scene in the Passion of Christ 
where this is depicted beautifully. We see that giant teardrop coming from the eye of the Father, and then the veil of the temple being torn, and then watch this scene. see that scene presented in any of our secondary education. But when Jesus died on the cross, he defeated our permanent enemy once for all. It says, but the Son of God came to destroy the works of evil, the devil. You say, well then why is there so much problem? The enemy knows he's a defeated foe. It's just a matter of time before Christ returns. The other thing I love about what you just saw is God says, don't mess with my son. God always has the last words. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to deliver us from the works of the devil. You know, in America, it looks like this. Well, I don't know if all this resurrection stuff is intellectually plausible. Don't all roads lead to God? I mean, nobody's perfect. But why did Jesus come? Why did he have to die? What does Easter proclaim with an exclamation point? That it does matter. Does it matter how I respond? Does it matter how my friends and my family? And if Jesus Christ is God and the claims are true, the implications are astounding. Jesus said this, I and the Father are one. If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm the way and the truth, the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. But you know what? We've got a whole culture that bets against that. Our media doesn't buy it. Secondary education doesn't buy it. And our pol the politicians don't buy it. But you know what? I wouldn't bet my life against it. That Christ is who he says he is. And because we don't recognize it has little to do with reality. Now those are the big three, folks. So the question is, if he can handle the greatest, can he handle all of our lesser challenges? Like what? Well, like the disciples faced. If you go back to Luke 24, it says that, In verse uh, 35, two men from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they recognized him as he was breaking the bread. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself suddenly was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened? Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands, touch my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure I'm not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies. As you see, I do. And it says, as he spoke, he showed them his hands and feet. 
Still, they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. And he said, you got a piece of fish? And he ate it so that they know ghosts don't eat fish. You see, folks, the disciples, the apostles, were caught in a cocoon of fear. You know what? Easter morning interrupted their world. Their very lives had been threatened. They had killed their master, they thought. They, it, this, the, the loss of Christ's life bred this gloomy outlook, and it spiritually killed their faith. Does Easter address and answer your fears? Well, we were in Africa. Uh, one of the team members with us was a pastor and, uh, from a church in Orange County, great guy. And um, he said, you know, fear is the same no matter what the culture, no matter what the era. And he told the story of his grandfather, who had been a pastor, but he had to drop out of the ministry for family reasons. But his whole life he had felt like he had let God down and that God rejected him. And after he died, this friend, this pastor, read his grandpa's journal. And he said it was the most frightening thing he had ever read. And he realized that as he was going through it, that his grandfather's fears were his own. He had the same ones. By the way, most of us will never read a family journal. But there's a good possibility that you suffer from the same fears as your parents and your grandparents did, though they never talked about them. If I were to say to you, what's your greatest fear today? You didn't come to Easter expecting that. But until you can name it, it controls you. And it will kill your joy and your future. And Satan will target it to keep you in fear. And by the way, God will tar target it too to get you out of fear. And we need to not only admit it to God, but to someone else we can trust with godly friends so we can be healed. James says, pray for one another. Confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. What's the opposite of fear? I think it's the faith that leads to courage. And by the way, fear is always based on a lie. And when you expose your fears, you're going to expose the lies of the enemy that are keeping you in that fear. The truth will set you free. Courage, as somebody said, is fear that has said his prayers. I like that. Fear is not, uh, courage is not the absence of fear, but courage doesn't let fear make its decisions. When Jesus said, don't be afraid, he didn't mean don't feel fear. He just meant don't let it make your decisions for you. And it was a fear that caused all the disciples to flee, to abandon Christ. But 50 days later, this same group who had chickened out on the Messiah stood before the very same people who said, crucify him. And they boldly proclaimed him. And 3,000 people in one afternoon gave their lives to the Messiah, who they had said and and. Peter had said, this Jesus whom you crucified is alive, and we have seen him. Where did that kind of courage come from? There's two more. The second thing that filled the disciples that day was the same thing Jesus had said. Not only why are you frightened, but why do you doubt? <laughs> why do you doubt? 
You see, fear and disappointment kills faith. These were grown men. They had all seen the disciples. Why didn't they have any faith? Why did they doubt? Because their faith had not been tested this severely. Oh, it had been tested before. And when the world collapses, what do we do? Where do we turn? When it doesn't work out according to our agenda. You see, God never fits into our box of predictability, of comfort, of our carefully crafted plans. God doesn't fulfill our expectations. Somebody sees their kids go south. A marriage sours. A job gets more difficult. And so where's God in all this? How could God let this happen? What's happening is our faith is being tested. Jesus came to rescue our lives from destruction and to give us life abundantly on the inside. The courage, the faith, the love. And sometimes he has to test it. I read this, it says, Jesus came for us, but that does not mean he came to please us. Jesus came for us, but that does not answer, but he does not answer to us. He will not subject himself to our agenda, no matter how good that agenda might be. It's saying he's not a genie there to grant our three greatest wishes. We're here to fulfill his wishes. And we tend to question God when life does not meet our expectations. Anybody identify with that recently? Or it's not happening the way you wanted. But instead of, what we do is, instead of questioning our expectations and our definitions of life, we question God. And what Jesus does is he turns right around and he questions their doubt. Did you catch that? Why do you doubt? And he asks us to do the same. You know why? Because most of us believe our doubt and, and doubt our beliefs. Just the opposite. And that's what Jesus is getting them to do. He said, doubt your doubts. Next time you have a doubt, why don't you doubt that? And hold to what Christ has said. Interestingly enough, doubt is not necessarily the opposite of faith. It's a test of faith. For example, we don't doubt what isn't real. I doubt if anybody got up this morning and had a deeply teleological, metaphysical, theological question about, is the Easter Bunny real? You probably didn't lose a lot of sleep last night over that. I know it has great existential implications in your epistemology, but hey, you know. But Jesus enters our doubts and he meets us there and he can handle all of yours and mine. Just because I can't see far enough. And when he said to the disciples, hey, you think I'm not alive? Touch me. Touch the nail prints. Touch the wounds in my side. And in John chapter 20 is my, one of my favorite stories of Thomas, you know, Thomas, you remember what his nickname was? Yeah, Doubting. Doubting Thomas, my, uh, who's my patron saint. It means twin. I think I was his twin, joined at the hip. But Thomas was not there the first time Jesus appeared to the disciples, John says. And so when they tell him, he says, he didn't say, I can't believe. He said, I will not believe. I will not believe until I see the nail prints in his hands. And it says, suddenly, while he's saying this, Jesus is standing there in a room and he says, Thomas, touch me. Put your finger in my side. And do not doubt. 
And then Thomas is the first one to say, my Lord and my God of all the disciples. If you go back, none of them have said it up to this point. And Jesus said, you see, you believe because you have seen. Blessed are those who have not yet seen me, but they believe based upon the evidence. And dear friends, why wouldn't, why wouldn't Thomas believe? Because Jesus did not meet his expectations of a political Messiah who, who, would, who, who didn't die. But Jesus has all the evidence you and I will ever need. So here's the question. Can he handle your problems, your greatest challenges, or can you do it better? Who has the power? And if you invite him into your challenges, you'll discover something in your doubts. Most of our doubts are not intellectual at all. Rather, they're moral. And Jesus, if the scripture says this, what finally helped them through their doubt? They needed more help than just simply touching his body. And it talks about, look at this, Luke 24 says, suddenly their eyes were open and they recognized him. And at that moment he disappeared. And then later on, it says he opened their minds to understand the scripture. Belief isn't just seeing the facts. You and I need supernatural assistance for God to drive it deep within our hearts. And so we ask him. This same group of men on that day at Pentecost said, this same Jesus who they now doubted and questioned 50 days from then, he said, whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead. The final challenge for you and me not only is there fear, not only is there doubt, but there's guilt. Everybody knows the story of Peter and how he denied Jesus three times. And it's interesting because when Jesus saw Peter, he didn't wait for Peter to come for him and ask for forgiveness. Jesus said to him, he initiated the relationship. He said, Peter, do you love me? Remember that? He said it three times. And it broke his heart. Yes, Lord, you know I do. Jesus doesn't wait for us to come. He pursues us, but he will not force himself on us. He faces Peter's denial with mercy, and he helps him ad admit who he is, because without a relationship with Christ, without honesty, there is no forgiveness. You know, the average man has a greater sense of his depravity than the average woman. Do you know why? Because he is. Yeah. Men, we worked at it. And I've learned over the years working with men for over 40 years. If the average man ignores God or just gives him token attention, 97% of the time, it's actually higher, but you know, let's leave it a little wiggle room. The reason is guilt has nothing to do with an intellectual pursuit. There's a moral problem in a man's life that he's running away from his past. He doesn't want to deal with something. And he doesn't want to, he feels that he's outside of God's mercy and grace. And therefore, he doesn't want to go there. And yet, the very reason Jesus came was to pursue us, to forgive us, and restore. Now, friends, there's only two things we can do. We can run away and try to hide. Or we can think of it, come to the one whose whole life is restoring grace and who loves you the most. He's the one we need most. He's our defense attorney. He could be our judge. He won't be. He's pleading our case right now before the Father. Father, forgive them. 
They didn't know what they were doing. And I love them. And I gave my life for them. And I paid the full price. And when he hung on the cross, he said what? It is finished. To tell us die. That's an accounting term, meaning the debt is paid in full. So that everyone who wants him can come and have him for eternity. Final question. Where does Easter need to rise in you and in me? Just a quick reminder, unless you can face your greatest fears and admit them and bring them to God, Easter has not yet risen in your heart and God needs to. How about your doubts? Is there anything God cannot do? If today was your last day on earth, would you have complete assurance that you go to be with Christ? I'm gonna invite our worship team to come forward at this time. You know, it occurred to me some time ago, not only do only forgiven people go to heaven, but none of us are powerful enough to raise ourselves from the dead, and we're all going to die. So who is going to raise you from the dead to have eternal life? There's only one person. Who will come to get you? He's already offered. And if we're not running into his arms, it's because of guilt. God, I'm not good enough for you. Of course you're not. And only the forgiven are embraced by Christ. He's waiting with open arms. Will you invite him into the secret places of your life on this Easter to do a work in you only he could do? Don't leave today without assurance. Let's sing this song. your heads with me please Jesus Christ invites us to come to him he says don't carry your fears that's why I came he can help us face them he died for them Jesus came to answer our doubts is he trustworthy I don't know
know of anyone more trustworthy. And Jesus came to remove our guilt. He didn't come to rub it in, but rub it out. If today were your last day on earth, are you risking it on the right person? There is no risk in Christ, but there is in ourselves and anything else. Don't trust your goodness, dear friends. Don't trust your track record. There's only one who's able to forgive us, to give us the power to rise from the dead and help us live here. If today you'd like to make sure that Christ is in your life, I'm going to invite you to just pray a simple prayer and say, Jesus Christ, I want you in my life. I know about you, but today I want to make sure I have a relationship with you and that I want your forgiveness and the strength of your power to deal with those things I cannot. Thank you for incredible mercy. God, forgive me for trying on my own to be good enough. I confess that sin of trying to perform for you, and I give it up. And now I give my life to you. Dear friend, if that expresses the desire of your heart, you prayed that prayer, I'd like to pray for you. Just lift your hand, saying that is the, expresses the desire of my heart to give my life to Christ. Put your hand up. Thank you. Thank you. Father, we give you praise for these who've just made the greatest decision of their lives. And for those who want that assurance, I pray that you will grant them the very strength that they've prayed for. Thank you, Lord Jesus, you died for them. And thank you that they can live in your power for the rest of their days. We give you thanks and we give you praise. In Christ's name, amen. Beneath the weight of all of our sin, let's sing.
Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. Come away, come away, come and rise up from the grave. Christ is risen from the dead, we are one with Him again. Come away, come away, come and rise Let's sing, oh death, sing it. Jesus is alive. We can live forever with him. Help us this day to give thanks and praise to the one who made us, who gave everything for us so we could live for you. Bless your people as we go this day and all of God's family said. God bless you. Thanks for coming and have a great Easter.